And then I remember I was driving to work. It was, I don't know, a few days before my birthday. Um, it was like 2017. And I was listening to this podcast and it was like a young guy and he just talked about how he had this online business that he'd started where he was now making 20 to $30,000 a month and he was going through it and it sounded so simple. And I was like, what am I doing? Like going to work for this engineering company where, you know, I made hundred grand a year. It was relatively comfortable, but I hated it. Welcome to the Road to 100 podcast a show for those of you who are out there building empires. We're your hosts, Cody Littlewood and Pasha Esfendieri. Together, we'll embark on the journey to the coveted 100 million mark, as well as striving for excellence in every aspect of our lives. Here at The Road to 100, we believe that true success goes beyond financial prosperity. That's why we bring you insightful conversations with top entrepreneurs and trailblazers who share their unfiltered experiences in building wealth, as well as cultivating fulfilling relationships and maintaining optimal health. This podcast is perfect for ambitious entrepreneurs, health enthusiasts, and anyone seeking genuine and transformative insights from those who dare to go all out. Welcome to The Road to 100, and we will see you at the finish line. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the road to 100. We uh, we have an awesome guest today, Mike DeHaan, um, who is in a mastermind with both Pasha and I. Um, and he has an incredible, incredible story. Um, he was also an engineer like me uh, and quit his W-2 job that he'd been at for five years, didn't have a plan, um, and just wanted to make more out of life. And he has grown a really impressive business, um, owns a bunch of real estate. He's done hundreds of deals. And uh, and has a nationwide wholesaling partnership program. So, anyways, welcome to the show, Mike. Um, we're super stoked to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to connect with you guys because you know the funny thing with with GoBundance is because it's so naturally dispersed. You know, there's a lot of people that I feel like I know or like I kind of recognize their names, but right. never actually get an opportunity to meet them face to face or have a good conversation. So I'm excited to get into this. Yeah. yeah just before the show, I had to ask how to say your last name because I've seen your name everywhere, but I, yeah. I don't, I, I've never had to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Co we all try to hang out with Cody. He's kind of famous inside of GoBundance. Mm. So we just all try to surround ourselves around him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, man. Well, um, I gave a little bit of a brief intro but I'd love to. I'd love to talk a little bit more. I, I love these or, or origin stories. Um, I mean, quitting your job, not and you quit your job before you knew what you were going to do. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I had no idea. Like all I knew was that I was miserable and that yeah. I needed to do something different. Cool. So. What's that process like? Like when you you so you quit. Take us put to that uh, point in time. You quit, and then you're like, oh shit, I have to figure this out. So then, well, how did that transition happen? Yeah. So I guess like going up to that point, you know, I'd had some mindset shifts, um, obviously, because like if I otherwise, if you just kind of quit and you haven't made the commitment to yourself that you were going to figure it out, then you just go and become a bum. Right. That's what people do. Yeah. You will go towards the path of least resistance, which is for a lot of people doing nothing. So um, I guess like to, to get to that phase, you know, I went to school, got an engineering degree. I was working at Boeing. I worked, I worked a bunch of different jobs, but Boeing was kind of like the most high profile one that I had. And did you work on the max? Uh, yeah. So I, I worked, he <laughs> oh, quit and, and everything went to shit. Yeah, dude, you want to know what's actually super messed up about that whole thing is 
like while I was there, so I worked as an equipment engineer on the wing line. So we were designing like the new equipment that was going to be basically used to manufacture those wings, right? Because they were longer than the the original model and all sort of stuff. And all through the process, a lot of the senior engineers were like, this is real bad. Like we have a lot of problems with oh, this. Oh, really? Yeah. And all of the like business people, like the, the engineering managers, the project managers who have no engineering experience, they were like, got to hit the budget. We got to hit timeline, push it through, push it through, push it through. And then when like the software things all started happening and the plane started crashing, they knew about that. Right. And then the, so that's why a bunch of people, you know, kind of behind closed doors ended up going to jail and different things because there was negligence that was involved in that for sure. Um, so I might be a Boeing whistleblower, but I was there. I saw it. (laughs) Wow. Wow, You're probably not the only, if, if you heard about it, I'm sure you're not the only one. Yeah, um, it, it was that's crazy. It was Will you fly on a Boeing anymore? So I'll tell you what, it definitely makes me look at planes differently. Um, I mean, I'll, the the QC that they generally do have is really solid. But when you meet some of the people that are putting the planes together, I mean, you're like, damn, I don't know if I trust what they're doing. <laughs> like, like, the, like the pro- like the project managers and the business no, people? Like the they're fine. Like, like the mechanics, like the people oh, really? that are actually doing the process. Because... Some of them, they're just so like in their box and they, you know, they're kind of union employees. They have their one task Mm. that they do. They know how to do that, but they don't have like a lot of oversight necessarily. They don't have a lot of like incentive to do well with it. And so as a result, the QC along the way, the quality check is very, very strict, which is great, but the waste is huge, right? So like, it's like, it was like 40% of the parts along the wing line, they would end up scrapping and recycling just because there would be an issue with it. But one of the biggest things we're working on was like, how do we make it so that the people on the line screw up less stuff so that we have less waste? So there's just like this constant problem. And, you know, when you see that, you kind of like meet the people, you see how kind of just like, meh, they are about the fact that they're building these machines that will carry hundreds of people in the air. It is a little bit of screaming through the sky at seven, (laughs) 600 miles an hour. Yeah. 35,000 feet, which is like what? Seven miles in the air. Yeah, Um, exactly. So I actually think it's pretty, so all that being said, I actually think the FAA or, or the commercial airline industry as a whole, it's, it's actually pretty incredible. Like the safety record. And if you compare it, I'm a, I'm a GA pilot. Mm -hmm. So like just general aviation. Uh, And I can tell you like the Cessnas I've flown, um, it makes sense why they crash, right? Like I've flown <laughs> things that had like, yeah. I mean, half the shit was in op. The transponder would like go out, you know, randomly. The radios wouldn't go out. I mean, everything was old, old, old. The seats are barely held together, right? I mean, the rivets are rusty. Um, Jesus. All sorts of stuff, right? Remind um, me not to fly with you. Yeah, right. Well, no, and I mean, not that, that's like a training plane. No, I know. But uh, but you see that stuff, and you're like, okay, this this kind of makes sense in the GA world, right? But still, the the difference um, the difference between uh, I mean, but even then, the safety record is actually pretty incredible, and like the amount of inspections and stuff they go through. Um, but it's uh, uh, I mean, it's a pretty incredible track record considering how many moving pieces, how many different mechanics, drunk pilots, whatever else you have like in the mix. So many variables. Yeah. yeah. One, one, one last comment on that. And then we'll, we'll go back into to real estate. Real estate but, <laughs> yeah. That, that, so just for Everyone context. Everyone subpoenaed by the FAA. Yeah. For, for context, how strict the, the quality checking, and this is the FAA requirement as well um, with the airplanes is, so on the, on the wings for the 777, um, 
just on the wing portion, right? There was, I think it was like 12,000 holes for like all the different nuts and bolts and things. It might, wow. might be too much of a number. Either way, there was thousands of them, right? And uh, they were all drilled by hand because they didn't have like a robot or anything yet to do that portion of it. And if one hole was off by more than uh, half of an inch, they scrapped the entire part and they started over. Wow. So like, that's basically the level of precision yeah. that they require. Yeah. So that's, that's like where you feel okay doing it because they are actually paying attention. Right, right, right. The QC so. is so intense. Uh, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyways. So anyways, so you, so you quit, went yeah. cold turkey and you're like, all right, yeah. now I gotta figure out how to make money. Did you have kids or a wife or anything? No, so I, I didn't have okay. kids and you know Not that, that it makes it that much, it makes it a little better though. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, Yes and no. So, so getting, <laughs> getting up to that point, right? Like I had been unhappy as an engineer for years. Um, and I had really delved into kind of like the financial independence movement in kind of like the poor man's way, right. Of like, I will nickel and diamond, I will save everything and I will, you know, invest as much money as I can into my retirement accounts and these other things so that I can retire early when I'm like 50, right. Not versus like 32, like I am now. Um, so that was the original, uh, sort of route that I took and that helped me establish really good spending habits. So then when I did leave, it was easier. Um, and then kind of the big turning point for me actually was about, I don't know, four months before I left, I read the four hour work week and that kind of opened my eyes to the power of like leverage and what having like a small business can potentially lead to and all this sort of thing. So that got my mindset going. And then I remember I was driving to work. It was... I don't know, a few days before my birthday. Um, it was like 2017. And I was listening to this podcast and it was like a young guy. And he just talked about how he had this online business that he'd started where he was now making 20 to $30,000 a month. And he was going through it and it sounded so simple. And I was like, what am I doing? Like going to work for this engineering company where, you know, I made hundred grand a year. It was relatively comfortable, but I hated it. And this guy was younger than me, even though I was only 27 at the time. Um, and he was like doing cool stuff. Right. And I was literally on the way to work. I called my wife and I said to her, I was like, I think I need to quit my job, you know? And she knew that I was unhappy and her response to me was, well, do you think that you'd be happier if you did that? Well, no, sorry. Her first response was, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure yet. And she goes, well, do you think you'd be happier if you did that? And I said, yeah, probably. And she said, cool, well, whatever you want to do, like I support that. Um, and then I basically wife. put in, yeah, I was very, very fortunate for sure. Yeah. Um, but then I put in my uh, basically notice three or four days after that with my boss. Um, so I, I jumped pretty quick. And then from there, my my boss who then at that point, who's actually now my business partner, he was one of my best friends from college. Um he was fortunate to let me carry out the year so I could like get my incentives and all that sort of stuff. And then I ended up leaving at the very beginning of 2018. Um, and what exactly my original plan was, I didn't fully know at first I thought engineering was the problem. So my intention was to go back to school and get into physical therapy because I coached, um, at like a weightlifting gym, like an Olympic weightlifting gym and a CrossFit gym in the evening kind of for fun. And I was like, maybe I could make that a career. I did that for like three weeks. I worked in a PT clinic and was going to classes. And I was like, this sucks. I definitely don't want to do this anymore. So I quit that. And then I just sort of started delving into learning about business and different things and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and I tried a bunch of different stuff. 
my wife and I went on a trip to New Zealand, which was kind of like a little bit of against the savings that we did, but I was like, I just needed a change of environment. That was a big thing that I got from all the books that I read was the easiest way to sort of like figure stuff out is to get out of your element. So we did this trip to New Zealand for about three weeks, um, came back and I was like, cool, I'm going to go and be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be, you know, what exactly it looks like. I don't know. And from there it was just like trial and error. And then real estate didn't come around, um, for even six or so months after that. But, wow. Holy shit. So, so you really been just, you've been doing this since 2019, uh, 2018. Well, yeah, so real estate, I started like late summer, 2018. Um, and you know, the original goal with it. So in that period of time, my goal was trying to figure out things that I could work remotely that would have high upside potential. So, you know, I did everything from, you know, trying digital marketing, doing like affiliate websites, you know, doing drop shipping, all the bullshit that you see as advertised as easy money on TikTok, right? <laughs> I try like I try like all that stuff. Um, and ultimately I decided that the biggest upside that I would have, because I wanted to make like big money as well, was to get into tech startups. Okay. So I recognized that I would hear about these people that had these big exits and those sort of things. So I locked myself in my basement for several months, taught myself how to code at a basic level and started applying for these different companies. And I ended up start working with this um, blockchain-based tech startup based out of Chicago. And it was early phase. So I was like one of the you know beginnings of the development team. They had a product we we're working on. I was doing all that sort of stuff, but I wasn't making very much money. And I just had like equity, which I learned doesn't really mean anything, right? <laughs> you know, especially in an early phase <laughs> startup. Um, yep. But my original goal for real estate was to get some passive income coming in so that I could supplement my income and have like, you know, pay my bills a little bit more comfortably while focusing on this tech startup thing that I was doing. Right. So uh, the real estate part of it, like creating value and like actually viewing it from like a higher ROI investment wasn't on my radar at all. All I wanted was easy, passive income, which I figured I could get from rental properties. So I liquidated my corporate 401k, um, mostly because like it's funny. I had like some decent savings still from my time where I was pinching pennies and just like putting stuff into savings so I could retire when I was 50. But I decided to pull all money on my 401k mostly as like kind of like a middle finger to the corporate world, to be honest. Like I just hated that I still had that connection to it. Um, and I bought these two single family homes that were around the corner from where I lived um, that were basically turnkey. And I didn't know anything about real estate. All I knew was that like, I could buy these for 200,000. My payment would be $1,200 a month. I probably could rent them for $1,600 a month. And I was like, cool, I'll make $800 a month between the two properties. Cash flow. that's easy money, right? And of course, that's not how it works. I didn't account for vacancy or any sort of repairs or any of that sort of stuff, but it kind of got me started. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was kind of my original foray into real estate. And then mm -hmm. when that money started coming in, I got the bug, I guess, of like the passive income, even though it had its ups and downs. And from there, I started getting more involved and listening to podcasts, going to meetups. And that's when I started getting into like fixer uppers and that sort of stuff. That's awesome. Got it. That's really um, cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I actually, I would love to know where you're at with your business now. And then you yeah. also mentioned something that was really, really interesting. Cody brought it up too, is that you have a method or you think it's the easiest way to get to two to $3 million net worth um, mm -hmm. from zero. 
by buying distressed real estate. So I think that's fascinating. No, 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 and not or, anyone. So let me rephrase it because uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty bold statement. Um, and I love I think we should d- dig into it. She so said anyone can go from zero to two to three net million net worth and reach financial freedom with discounted real, residential real estate in less than a year if they take action. Correct. Which I is super bold. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love. Yeah. I love bold shit. So let's yeah. let's let's fucking go. Yeah, I, I very strongly <laughs> believe that. Yeah. So so yeah. where my business is at now. Um, so you know, I, I started flipping houses that period of time shortly after that. Evolved that into a wholesaling operation um, where we were buying stuff. You know, wholesaling being assignment was one of our extra strategies, but we were focusing very heavily on the marketing and acquisitions. Um, you know of like the distressed property, the discounted properties, right? Fast forward now, um, I operate this large partnership program where we do stuff around the country. So we are re- currently running marketing and acquisitions in uh, 22 different markets around the United States, um, all buying distressed single family properties. And we basically partner with a bunch of different people who was our boots on the ground. Um, and we're just doing huge volume of transactions, right? So averaging right now between 20, 30 uh, contracts per month. Um, so that statement though, is something that as I have reflected back on kind of how I sort of grew my net worth and how um, I was able to qualify for good bonds, different things. So when I first started in real estate, you know, obviously I had some money saved up. Um, I didn't have like a huge level of experience. i like, you know, flipped a couple houses, figured all that out. When I still wasn't making any money really, because I was trying to like, you know, figure out how to reinvest and all this sort of stuff. But when we started marketing to off-market um, real estate, you know, deals, right? Like trying to find discounted deals in early 2020, that's when we officially started like the wholesaling business to when I became a millionaire, took me 10 months, right? And that was with a bunch of hurdles and tough learning experiences and wasted opportunities and, you know, different issues that we encountered that are easily easy to avoid if you know what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the average person, if they want to become a millionaire, they want to be worth, you know, two or $3 million. You can do that through residential real estate, buying at a discount super easily. If you know how to find the opportunities, because it's just math. Like, honestly, if you have a $500,000 property, you're able to buy for $350,000. Your net worth just grew $150,000. Okay. You do that. What? Like 10 times. That's 1.5 million do that another couple of times, that's 2 million, right? And the funny thing is that oversimplifies it, but we do that every single month over and over and over and over again, right? And the thing is we did that at the start with it was literally just me and a business partner and some VAs. And we were doing a very aggressive clip of deals in the hottest market that existed at that point in time, right? In 2021, especially. Um, so it's something that people think sounds like a pipe dream, but once you Mm -hmm. kind of have a system around it and you know how to identify opportunities, it can happen a lot faster than you think. Okay. What is, what is the system, right? So you have a lot of people who are probably listening to this who aren't millionaires yet. And they're like, damn, Mm -hmm. that sounds great. But Mike figured out something that I didn't like, what is that system? What, what, what did you do? Mm -hmm. I think in, to put a little more point on it, if I could, if I could, uh, uh, if I could posh and you let me know if I'm going in the wrong direction with your question, but you know, you said it's just math, right? Buy it 350 and sell it at 500. 
by the way, I have, I've also have a buddy that lost a bunch of money day trading that way. He's like, just buy low and sell high, man. Yeah. Um, so, so you're right. It is just math, but like, you've got to find the deals, right? Mm -hmm. got I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the key to your industry, right? Is controlling the deal exactly. finding and then controlling the deal. And so I guess, yeah. you know, uh, maybe is, is, I think that's what Pasha was asking, right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes. the, th the funny thing is, is people always want to overcomplicate it and make it think like this, this large complex thing that you have to do yeah. literally what we do with our business you can go and watch a bunch of youtube videos and learn the exact same stuff right we pull distress lists from list providers you know prop stream list source wherever you want to find it people that have bankruptcies people that have liens people that have vacant properties landlords that have a ton of equity have owned it for a long period of time whatever you reach out to those people via direct mail sms cold calling targeted online ads whatever you want to do and then you do that at volume and you engage with people and you work with them to identify problems that they are dealing with. Okay. And the thing is, that's important is if it's targeted advertising, you know, you know that they're on a bankruptcy list, you know that they have liens on their property. Every person you're talking to should have some sort of situation that might suggest they need to sell at a discount. And then it is working with them to come to a mutually beneficial arrangement for you to be able to help solve their problem and you to be able to get a good deal. Okay. And where most people get held up on this is they try to do things that are hyper-targeted or low volume. And they're like, mm, I just not find any opportunities. It's like, well, yeah. you're sending 200 mailers a month, right? We need to be doing is sending 5,000, 7,000. And obviously you can build up to that, right? Um, but the great thing about real estate versus say day trading where you're buying low and selling high is you can already certify that the property is worth more than you're paying for it. Sure. It's not like day yep. trading where you're like saying, I'm thinking the stock's going to go up. This, you can say like, well, the house down the street that's just like this one sold for 500 and I'm able to get it for 350 because you know, the guy's going into foreclosure. He hasn't paid his taxes in four years, right? And so you can feel, you can set things up in, in to be much more advantageous for you. Um, and, you know, it just consistency of that process over and over and over again, and really focusing on helping with the solution for people as opposed to the hard asset is where the real money is made in this. Um, and then the other thing too, with real estate and why it's so powerful is you can force the increase of that value as well, which is something that so many people overlook, especially in kind of like the wholesale realm where people are just looking at existing properties. We've made a huge amount of our money by doing things like adding square footage, right? Increasing the usability of a property, you know, finishing basements, converting garages, you know, adding ADUs, those sort of things, stuff that in GoBundance we talk about all the time. Those things, when it comes to residential real estate, aren't that complicated. Like you can find people that know how to do that. You pay them to do it, right? And you can even use leverage. You can use hard money loans to do it. So you don't have to have a bunch of your own cash. And just doing that consistently over time can lead to some really major results um, relatively quickly. Do you think that the market is like, can, can people still, I, I feel like I could be wrong, right? I feel like I'm in Miami market mm -hmm. feels just crazy saturated, or, yeah. but I don't know if I'm just exposed to it and I see it a lot, et cetera. You know, I'm just in the real estate world um, or I just hear about it a lot. I mean, is this, you know, and, and, and back when you got started, it wasn't as widely well known mm -hmm. that bigger pockets blew up and everything else. I mean, is this, is this still a viable is everything just saturated beyond belief or is this still something that's viable that you can go out there and build a, 
you know, that you can go out there and build a business on. What would you do if you were starting today in 2023? So I would, I would do the same thing. I think the biggest thing that I would, um, try to educate myself on is understanding the alternative, like sort of buying styles, I guess, acquisition styles for real estate. So one of the biggest things that we're finding right now, you know, and again, we're doing this all across the country in a bunch of different markets. You know, you're in Miami, we're doing stuff in very hot markets, Jacksonville, Florida, Phoenix, Arizona, Houston, Texas, markets that are highly competitive. And where basically what you have to do is you have to do a little bit more volume with with your marketing, right? So your cost per deal goes up a little bit, but the real opportunities come from being able to identify the different ways that you can purchase these properties and also be mutually beneficial with the seller. So if you're kind of a one trick pony or trying to just do cash purchases, it is challenging right now, right? People have significantly more equity than they've ever had before. People don't necessarily know where they're going to go. So getting a bunch of cash doesn't help them. But instead, if you sort of learn to identify an opportunity for seller finances, right, or doing subject twos, all of the stuff that all the gurus are selling right now on Instagram, the reason they're doing that is because everyone has the same question. They're like, where's the opportunity? It's like, oh, well, here, we can create the opportunities doing these other methods, which is true. There's obviously a lot of loopholes and stuff that you need to figure out that they don't tell you. Um, but going through that process, you can find opportunities everywhere once you kind of understand that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think right now, so last year, 2022, it was very hard. Um, everyone was kind of at a stalemate. A bunch of people had equity. No one wanted to buy. People were getting used to the interest rates. Now that stuff has started to kind of like come over the ledge a little bit and values have started to drop, we're starting to see a huge increase in things like people being underwater on their properties, right? People now being really? comfortable Oh, oh yeah. We've had more leads, I think in the last three or four months of people that are underwater. And hmm. I didn't like, think things, I mean, we've seen it in commercial real estate. We've seen big drops in value, you know, 20, 30% in certain, yeah. in certain markets, but I didn't know, um, residential. I mean, cause right. You'd, I mean, you'd almost have to have a 20, 20% drop and well, I guess no, cause you can qualify for like FHA loans, which are three percent down. Okay, there you yeah. go. It, it's all the FHA buyers and all the VA buyers that were paying forty, fifty thousand dollars over asking with no money, and now all of a sudden they are in, in all these markets. They are experiencing these massive price inc uh, tax, pro sorry, property tax increases. Yeah, right. And so it, exactly, and all of a sudden the affordability for them is a major problem. So they're looking to exit because they don't have the ability to pay their monthly payment. That's now seven hundred dollars a month more than it was when they bought the property two years ago. But isn't that a kind of a problem for you? Like, no. how do you solve, how do you solve? So no, and I, this, so, so you say yeah. no, which is awesome because <laughs> me in my head, I'm like, okay, well, that's a problem because the bank wants, let's use, let's use rough numbers, right? Bank wants yeah. 500 grand, right? They mm -hmm. owe 500 grand on the property. The property is worth 475, mm -hmm. right? You want to pay 450, maybe less, right? Transaction costs. Cause you want to, you want some margin. So how if are I, you, if you know, I was paying it, Bank if I was more. paying it for with cash, right? So yeah. I need to be at that. But if I can assume their mortgage, which they got for 2.99% uh, several years ago, and now the monthly payment on it is so much lower than even if I bought it for cash at 425, right? And I can get it with zero, no money out of pocket myself. I can go and I can assign that to another investor. Um, you know, I can go and put a rental uh, tenant in there and keep it as a rental because it has significantly lower down uh, monthly payment than anything else. And you're still subject to the taxes and all sorts of stuff at that point. But as an investor, you're able to weather that storm. Um, and 
honestly, one of the things that's really unique about the wholesaling world is you kind of have two sides of the coin that you need to monitor in terms of like what they need. So you have the seller side, obviously, right? Um, you need to be able to solve their problems, get them out of the properties so you can do your acquisitions, but you also have your buyer pool and most buyers, you know, like you'll have your professional buyers, your seasoned flippers, all sorts of stuff, but you also have like the flavor of the month buyers, right? You have the young couple who just learned about financial independence and they have been watching Pace Morby content and they want to buy a subject to deal. So if you can get a deal that fits those metrics that they want, you can make money with the off-market transaction piece of this by selling it to them. Okay. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, you always kind of have to be monitoring the trends on both sides to be able to do well in like mm -hmm. the wholesale side business. Though. Yeah. You need buyers as well, right? Yeah. yeah. What, um, how are you, out of curiosity, how are you assuming, are, are FHA loans assumable? So they're, they're not assumable. And with the VA loans, you te technically have to be a veteran to be able to assume them. So this is where the gray area with subject to always comes into play. Right. And okay. this is the kind of stuff that, you know, the pace Morbys and the other subject to gurus and stuff don't tell you because they'll always say stuff like, Oh, you know, don't worry about the due on sale clause. Those never happened. And then everyone always seems to talk about currently like the due on sale insurance. I don't know if you guys have heard about that, no. but apparently there's no. some fake company that offers due on sale insurance. But when you ask everyone where they found that, they can never tell you who. So it's all just like some BS marketing tactic. Um, so you have to understand there is an associated risk with it. Um, so the bank doesn't necessarily let you legally assume it. What it, what it has to look like is, you know, you assume that loan, you have a third party escrow company that, basically ensures that it's getting paid. Okay. And so what it looks like on paper, um, if you want to protect the seller, which you should, if you want to do this ethically is the seller will have a second position on the property that allows them to claim it back. If you default on paying the mortgage payment, mm. then what it actually looks like in terms of the, the money moving is you pay the seller through a third party title and escrow company. And then that person pays, sorry, a third party um, note servicing company. And then that note servicing company pays the uh, mortgage, right? So what that what happens is if the payment does not get paid, the seller gets alerted first and they have the ability to claim back the property before you Got default it. to the bank, right? So you Got technically it. have title, you're still subject to do on sale, but that way you're protecting the seller. And then in all the other things that people don't talk about, right? Insurance, um, the, uh, the utility companies, depending on the state, some utility companies, they are required to report to the mortgagee who is on title. So that way, if there's utility liens that pop up, the mortgagee can take action against them. Um, and then like any sort of property tax stuff as well, depending on the state, sometimes there's issues where if you fall behind on property taxes, or there's a change on the property tax, um, on the assessor, the, to make sure the property taxes are getting paid, they'll report that to the title company. So what you have to do is basically set up a power of attorney so that you have the ability to speak for the seller on all of those things, on the insurance, the taxes, the utilities, they technically stay on those accounts. Okay. But you have the ability to make decisions regarding everything with that. And then same with the mortgage as well. Um, yeah. So there's all these like just like little legal nuances that are probably super freaking boring, and I just rambled about it for five minutes, but no, they're actually, really important. Actually, no, super like, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really interesting. I like, I like the yeah. ability to do things ethically, protect the seller, right? Mm -hmm. I think so many guys in the business like really just don't do shit. And, yeah, um, 
every time I've ever heard about wholesaling and subject to, I've never actually heard one person legitimately say, protect the seller. And you were the first person that ever said that, which is insane to me. I appreciate that. I mean, we, we do strive to try and, you know, run as ethical and like, you know, above board of a business as we can. Like that's always been one of the biggest things that we have, you know, led with even when we first started, because especially when we first started 2019, it was like wild west wholesaling. Every guy that was out there wholesaling was borderline criminals, you know, with some of the stuff that they were doing. And our general philosophy has been, if this was like our mom, this was our grandma that we were talking to, if this was like our cousin that had problems, how would we want them to be treated? You know, and how would we yeah. feel about this conversation that we're having with the seller if this was somebody else and it was like our family that was involved, right? Yeah. Um, and the thing is too, is people have just such a scarcity mindset and they think that they need to be shady with it. You really don't, like it is a legitimate industry. There are processes that allow you to do what you want to do. You just got to not be a scumbag and just be transparent yeah. with people. And you are, I mean, you are providing value, right? Um, Absolutely. You're providing two sides of a transaction. One side of the transaction would just become, would go bankrupt or, yeah. you know, get foreclosed on. Other exactly. side of the transaction, you know, I mean, obviously a buyer is a little less, uh, you know, a little less uh, uh, in a bad situation. But yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I I think, um, Pasha, was it you and I that were talking this weekend when we saw each other? We were talking about the, like, if you really, if you really want to build a big business, right? It's really short-sighted to screw people over the short run. Right. And <laughs> yeah. was it, weren't we talking about that? Was it you and me or was it me and Dan? I can't remember. Um, I think it was maybe you and Dan, but we've talked about it before, but it wasn't about this weekend. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Just to piggyback on what I think everyone is so short-sighted yeah. on the big picture of business. You just got to take yeah. care of your people and take care of your customers mm-hmm. and that'll reciprocate over and over again. Yeah. And also take care of your investors, right? I, I know some guys that are large, um, you know, that, 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 that raise a bunch of money and they're like, you know, what I feel are unfair terms, right? Because they, um, you know, they, they, they have access to a certain pool of retail capital that doesn't have access to a lot of like private equity deals um, and are just excited to have access to those deals. And I don't think they're giving them like very good terms and, you know, their kind of response is, well, it's, it's what the market will bear. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm like, yeah, but but that guy doing a hundred thousand dollars a year, he's not going to stay there. Right. Like he's 35, 40 when he's 60, that guy's going to be writing half a million dollar checks and he's going to have access to better deals. Right. Mm -hmm. And do you want to be his first call because you always treated him right. And you give him fair terms, or do you want to be that, you know, ah, that, you know, I used to invest at such these shitty terms. Right. Um, and keep having that turnover. And what I've seen is that, you know, real serious allocators of capital um, really do care about their investors doing well. And it's not just what will the market bear, it's how do I provide a fair deal, you know, to my investors. And 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 people people do have some sense of what, you know, some sense of fairness, right? And, and I think that uh, um, there've been like several studies that have shown like, you know, when treating people fair over a consistent amount of time is far more beneficial. And the world is not that small. Um, mm-hmm. especially in the circles that we play in. So I, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer. I'm a, like, I'm a really big believer that, yeah, okay, maybe, you know, maybe you get ahead for a year, maybe two years, but like, you know, you're not like, if, if you know, you're, you're not playing the long game, right? You'll, maybe you'll get to one, $2 million, $3 million net worth, right? But you're not going to get to 10, 15, 
20, 30, et cetera, playing those short-term, um, the short-term games, uh, that really like don't provide value to other people and they're only are providing value to you. So. Yeah. And I, I think that's so, you know, that's, a, that's a great point. And in the real estate world, especially like you said before, it is an extremely small circle. Yep. You know, it's unbelievable. Like, you know, the biggest players down to people that are brand new are three people removed, like at most, honestly, like if somebody wanted, they can hit me up on Instagram. I can connect them to somebody else who knows like Grant Cardone, right. Who knows Brandon Turner, who knows Ken McElroy, who knows yeah. like all the biggest people. And it's just, especially with when you start doing any sort of volume stuff gets around very, very quickly, yeah. you know, and that exists on like a local level too, in every market. So if you're trying to do shady wholesale stuff, you're selling bad deals, you're screwing over sellers, you're doing these sort of things. You're, you'll get called out very quickly and it will, you know, leave a major mark. Yeah. That's one thing that I always, you know, think about is everyone, everyone talks. And so when I tell other operators that you better do right by all your investors all the time, but because do not think that A, they're dumb and do not think that they're not going to talk with everybody else. And it, word will get back because somebody heard something and you know how many times I've been able to hear about some operator I was vetting, hey, have you heard of these people? And I end up finding somebody who has worked with them or not. So, you know, to case in point, everyone will always tell you, tell your business on how you handled it. So just mm -hmm. always really be on top of everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, a, you said something kind of interesting. I was just curious about it um, in your kind of, in your intake form, you thought that there was, it was a really interesting topic to talk about the future of residential real estate. Yeah. Um, technology and like startups and everything else have disrupted a lot of different things. And like, I know there have been some specific trends in residential real estate, lowering home ownership, increasing amount of rentals, you know, re more and more single family homes being owned by institutional players. Um, although not maybe as, you know, as blown up as it, the, the news makes it sound, but I'm just curious, what, uh, what did you mean by that? Where, where, what is the future of single family residential real estate? Yeah. And, and one of my, one of the things I think about a lot with residential real estate isn't even so much on the institutional side as it is like the consumer side of it. Right. And the everyday person, because, you know, obviously we have such a large wealth gap in the country that just seems to be getting larger and larger and larger every day. Um, and everyone blames the institutions and things like that for it. But honestly, a big part of that is just a major increase in like financial education and people who are understanding the value of starting to buy properties, you know, and like make these investments and like do better for themselves. And I think that that's something that's super understated, right? Cause if you go back 10 years, how many people like, you know, young people, we're actively out talking about and pursuing financial independence and generating wealth on a way that's like outside of their job. Not very many. And now it's like everywhere you go, right? You go into any coffee shop and there's all these people that are trying to do that. Um, and one of the challenges with like on the residential side, and this is what I'm curious is what's going to be the tipping point here is people's desire to pursue that, right? Are getting, it's pushing them to make more and more, tight purchasing decisions. Okay. So they're starting to like pursue these different kinds of, you know, rental investments, you know, midterm rentals, rent by the rooms, you know, I'm pretty sure we're going to have like rent by the beds here pretty soon. Right. And the problem is with that is you have, you know, 
the the have dues, right? The people with money that are kind of driving that. And you have this massive population of people who are perfectly good people who are basically going to have to keep eating it over and over and over again. And at what point are we going to like get to a situation where we are now renting by the room to families of five people who are all sleeping in a 12 foot by 12 foot room, just like they do in freaking Bangladesh, right? Mm -hmm. Before that becomes a problem. Like, because that seems to be the direction that we're heading and something has to break at some point. It'll either be people's living standards will be like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so they'll stop renting altogether. Um, or like, you know, the sellers, uh, sorry, the buyers will just buy things that are such bad properties that it'll basically push stuff over the edge because they're going to be overbuying so much with these different assumptions. And when I just look at like the big picture I know that something has to break on one side or the other, and I don't know what it is, but I do think that too many people are focused on the institutional impact and not the power that the working class actually does have when they become the vast yeah. majority of the population, right? I've thought about this a lot, Mike, and because I'm in mobile home parks, it's actually mm -hmm. the market trend that got me into mobile home parks. because There is no more low income getting getting uh, housing getting built in America. Like you could argue the light tech route, but I'm going to argue that it's more for middle income and middle class. Like it is not for low income whatsoever. The problem is, is that if somebody doesn't find a solution to do this because it's too expensive to build out the infrastructure mm -hmm. and the rents are too low to make this happen, the only way out of it is that this gets subsidized in a major way by our government. But then what people don't realize is that when it's subsidized by the government, um, if they print more money for these, it's just going to accelerate the problem even mm -hmm. more. And so it's just kind of this vicious cycle that we're in and there is no good solutions. Now, obviously we could talk about prefab, um, you know, tiny homes, all of these little movements where I think the general population is looking for potentially less uh, square footage and are just happy having home ownership somewhere. But man, something needs to to happen here. So I'm with you, Mike, there is no good solution on the horizon whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's just such a, yeah, exactly. It's just such a, a weird topic too. Cause I always feel like people tend to focus on the wrong parts of it. You know, they want to blame the Blackstones and all sort of things, which, you know, the, the capitalist side of it, which has contributed on some level, but I think that the bigger part of it is just like the, you know, like the complete lack of, um, affordable housing, like you said, in the way yeah. that there's, there's no possible way to even add it, you know, and also too, the traditional affordable housing doesn't exist anymore. Like out here, if you Zero. want to rent a mobile home, even in like a park, you're paying 900 to $1,100 a month. Well, what park are you in? Uh, I'm in Washington state. So I'm in yeah. Eastern Washington and Spokane. Yep. That sounds about but right. I will, I will say it's impossible to build a starter. Like every builder I know, um, I think you're right. It is on the supply side, right? And there's some components of nimbyism, and especially in like certain markets, like mm -hmm. huge nimbyism. And, you, and there's reasons why you see Texas with more affordable housing and Florida with more affordable housing than areas like, you know, Washington and, and California and, you know, and, and New York. So I think there is absolutely like a political component to it, but there's also just like this cost component to it mm -hmm. um, that I don't know how they really solve. You talk to every builder and they're like, listen, you know, I can either build a 4,000 square foot house and sell it for, you know, sell it for 600, 700 grand. And I can make, you know, 20% margins on it or whatever, 15% margins on it. Or like, if I build a, if I build a starter home, 1200 square feet and you know, they're like, I'm not going to make anything on it. Right. Like mm -hmm. everyone you talk to, 
you know, they, and, and this is the same thing that happens in multifamily. And one of the reasons why we, why, why we particularly love, like why we invest in like class B is like, you cannot build for, you know, you cannot build a profitable property for class B multifamily. So like, let's say like people making 55,000 to $65,000, $70,000, you know, a year, like the people that can pay, you know, $1,200, $1,300 rents, you can't build for that. Right. You can build for $2,000 rents, $2,200 rents. Right. Or you can build affordable where you have a tax component, but then only certain people can live there. Right. They don't, that don't make enough. And so there's this whole middle section of like starter homes, young family apartments, um, that like some of it is nimbyism, right. For sure. Mm -hmm. And some of it is like, you know, some of it is, you know, there's probably outside components, but you just like, it's not, it's not a profitable venture. Right. Um, you know, because of the cost to build the labor, the the materials, et cetera. I don't know. I I mean, something's got to give on that front. The only thing that I I wanted to interject that gives me hope is technology, right? Mm Technology is going to get us out of any mess in my opinion, because I'm such a believer in tech. But, you know, there's there's a bunch of YouTube videos about these 3D homes that are getting printed and, you know, that. So it really just I don't think we're there for a while. I know when I was developing here in L.A., um, I contacted a lot of prefab companies and the cost for me to build a stick build home with all the waste and all the BS you have to deal with was right about on par where the prefab was. That prefab was just a little bit more per square foot on my home. And that was, you know, a few years ago. So I have to just assume that technology is going to get better and better and better. And it's going to keep reducing it. I actually think that's a, that's a play for any developer to develop prefab homes once the cost of building, because it's all controlled costs. It's a controlled timeline. And, you know, you know, with contractors, it's always a little bit over budget and a struggle. So that's the only thing that gives me hope is tech, but just again, nothing on the horizon. That's like, Hey, this is what's going to help us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a, you know, like I said, the timeline, who even knows, but it's like something has to, something will probably break before that comes together. Right. And that's yeah. the, that's the big concern I have and what that'll be. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, Mike, so how does everyone get in contact with you? Uh, what are you up to? And then how do they uh, find out more about you? Yeah. So um, they want to find out more about what I do and about the off market sort of world and, and how we operate our business. I have my own show. It's called the Collecting Keys Podcast. Mm-hmm. It is a kind of like middle, higher level real estate business show. So we go a lot into how we operate the business, how we grow the business. So if you want to learn about like, I don't know how to analyze a property or what the Burr method is, probably not for you. But if you want to like know how to actually grow a business and take things seriously, you should have to check out Collecting Keys. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can do so on Instagram at Mike underscore invests. Um, and the biggest thing that we're working on right now is like I said, we are, we're building this partnership program. So our goal and how we're plan how I'm planning to get to like hundred million, I've taken a big shift towards focusing on business and scale and getting out of just like our local market. So we are trying to build this partnership endeavor where we are standing up and operating wholesale operations for people around the country. Um, so we're working with a bunch of guys all around the U S right now. And my goal is to be doing that in 100 markets, um, by the end of 2025. So we're currently oh, yeah. in, currently in 2022, uh, sorry, currently in 22 markets. So I need to five X that here in the next year and a half. Yeah. That's, that's the best words that anyone can say is you got to pick a business and know how to scale it. If you mm-hmm. want some massive success, it's just all about scalability. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Mike, awesome. I really appreciate having you on. I know Cody did as well. Um, Thanks, man. really, yeah, it's a really and, fun conversation. 
yeah. got everything awesome from things. crashing planes to uh, uh <laughs> to, to, to 3d printing houses so. yeah for sure awesome guys really appreciate it thank yeah. you mike appreciate it thanks all right so that's it for this episode of road to 100 thank you so much for watching or listening all the links and resources that we mentioned are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes and depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then please make sure to leave us a five-star review because it truly helps new people to discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, then you can leave your comment below and ask any questions, insights, or thoughts about the episode. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button.